Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we're in the midst of um, our series on for Lent on atonements and atonement theories. Uh, we've looked at the various atonement theories. We've looked at Philippians 2. And last week we spent some time looking at some um, scriptural basis for, for atonement uh, via the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Sarah, where are we heading to this week? So this week is a very important week in most Christian churches. It is Holy Week! Yay! So that means, you know, Thursday we have Monday, Thursday, Friday is Good Friday, Saturday is Easter Vigil, maybe if your church is having one, and then Sunday is the day. It is Easter. So today we are going to be looking at the cross and the resurrection and asking the question that I think we've been hedging around, if not already asking, this entire series, which is why did Jesus have to die for us? And as we enter this, I mean, we've been we've been trying to ask the question um, the way different theologians have framed it before, the way biblical passages have, and so far we've tried to spend the time looking at the question of why the cross in particular, um, but maybe it's worth us in today's conversation looking at what does the resurrection have to do with this? Because uh, to be really kind of honest, um, some of the models we've talked about, about what happened at the cross, almost make the resurrection like it could be a footnote. Again, maybe maybe to be fair, if you were being sloppy. Yeah. But like when we talked before about uh, moral influence theory, about the idea that Jesus dying on the cross is an example of supreme love, well, you and I don't have the option of willing ourselves to rise from the dead. So that, that it, the resurrection is one of those, well, that doesn't count, it doesn't matter. And, and mm-hmm. some folks might even say it wouldn't matter if Jesus came back from the dead. His example is that he, he died. And um, penal substitution, the idea that mm-hmm. Jesus pays a debt for us or, or takes our punishment, um, sometimes you'll hear people make a robust defensive, and that also means he had to rise for us, but sometimes it can sound very just sort of like divine accounting, like Jesus had to pay the price of his life, and uh, oh, by the way, as a footnote, he also rose from the dead, but that's mm-hmm. significant, that's, uh, it's insignificant for our salvation or something like that. But maybe, as people who are, you know, Easter people, and for whom the resurrection is a pretty significant piece of what the New Testament's all about, it's worth asking, how does the atonement question change if, you, if our starting point is that uh, Jesus is risen from the dead, does that change the conversation at all? Or uh, are, there, are there biblical uh, touchstones to look at for how the resurrection uh, changes this whole conversation? Are there thoughts uh, that you, any of you would suggest for a starting point? Where, where might we go? As a good Lutheran, <laughs> I think we should start with the best chapter in the entire Bible. <laughs> Romans 8. <clears throat> It is a good place to go. I'm going to say the Methodists don't believe that there is a best chapter in the Bible, so I'm just throwing that out there. (laughs) In all fairness, I do not speak for all Lutherans everywhere, but I think Martin Luther would agree with that. (laughs) So, really, I'm right. (laughs) So, anyway, clearly there's reason for us to mind the depth of this passage. Uh, Tell us, what, what do you think in particular? Well, really, if we had time, all of it, I'm sure is important. <laughs> but specifically, let's look, like, you know, verse 31, 30, like, starting 31, 32 into the end of the chapter. Um, because I think this is what we are all familiar with. It is what is often used at funerals, because it is a good, nice text. Um did you all want me to just read it so we all are on the same page? Or at least if there are highlights that you want to uh, bring to our attention. 
Okay, so it begins specifically, What then are we to say about these things? If God is not for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then it kind of goes on from for a bit longer, and then it ends with that part that we all know so well from funerals, which is, you know, I am for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor a whole bunch of other things will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well said. So, if we're asking this passage of Paul what the resurrection of Jesus means for the atonement. It seems like the idea is that both the the cross and the resurrection together are signs of there is nothing that will get between us Mm -hmm. and God. Because if God Mm -hmm. has gone to the lengths of, one, Jesus dying for us, and if Jesus now is alive and risen and is there interceding on our behalf moment by moment, then there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. That, Correct. So, yes. if, if, great passage. If the idea is, what does the resurrection mean, or is the, is the resurrection important in all this? Yeah, because the resurrection is the sort of because Jesus is alive and risen mm-hmm. from the dead. There, it death death couldn't win. It couldn't win against it couldn't win against him, and so it can't win against us. And there's nothing. It's it, part of Paul building toward that. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, the resurrection is what gives us that hope for life after death. Okay, yeah. And so, I mean, and Paul makes it very clear, nothing can separate us, including our own death, because with Jesus' resurrection and our belief in him, then that gives us the ability to then be raised from the dead ourselves, where if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we don't have that guarantee necessarily. Right, right, right. So I, I think this may be a good case study for what I, what I hope we're trying to get at in this whole episode, which is to say... Um, Instead of starting with the, the cross and trying to figure out what it means, that it, maybe it's helpful to say, if in the end the, 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 the story of Christianity doesn't end with the cross but ends with the resurrection, how does that change the trajectory of what we mean or what, what, what we think the, the cross is all about? Um, that, that's helpful. That we, we don't really understand what it is that we're, the cross is, is, is trying to solve unless we finally get it. Somehow the vindication happens in the resurrection. And, and Paul here seems to be saying that we were, the issue is, will we be separated from God? And no, if, if Jesus, if God's willing to go the length of a cross to, to bring us back to God, and if Jesus' resurrection is, uh, we're connected to Jesus, then he's raised, we'll, we'll be raised as well. There's that notion. I want to invite us to take a look at uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, and um, this is another one of those late uh, New Testament epistles that bears Paul's name. We talked before about whether it's uh, Paul himself or someone writing with Paul's authority. Uh, but in any case, this is one of those passages where the idea of what happens at the cross is connected with what happens in the mm-hmm. resurrection. And it's, it in some ways feels very like the, the, the model we looked at before called Christus Victor. The idea that the, the cross and the resurrection together are this idea of... of uh, a big victory, a, a battle that's fought against the powers of evil. And here, uh, let me read from uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and following. It talks about, When you were buried with him, that's with Christ, in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with all its legal demands, 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. So, like, as I read this, it sounds very much like cross and resurrection are, like, really tightly connected. Mm -hmm. And there's not quite the language of, like, Jesus paying a debt. It's almost like the debt is just erased. Um, that's the, the language of we had this, all these, uh, uh, you know, black marks on our permanent records, right? and that God just sort of says, I'm erasing it. Um, and that he's left that record at the, at the cross and nailed it there so nobody can ever get it again kind of a thing. I don't, I don't know if this is true in your tradition, Erica, but this is one of those verses which is in, or passages, which is in our funeral liturgy as Lutherans. And it's not often cited. It's not like, now we're reading from Colossians. It's just, it's there. It's part of the liturgy. as something that we say. And um, it, so it's so ingrained in the liturgy that like I often forget that, that this is St. Paul writing to the church in Colossians or the Colossians. Colossa, yeah. yeah, whatever the town name is called. Um, and, but it is, for Paul at least, this whole idea of Jesus being resurrected is so tied in with the hope and promise of our own resurrection. Yeah. And it's passages like this that makes me go, oh yeah, this this is this liter this part of the liturgy is scriptural. This is where we get this. This is the promise that we are holding on to. And the idea that seems uh, implicit here is that even though he talks about Jesus having died and being raised, there's not a whole lot of talk about like why it was important that it's a cross or that it's crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Other other places when we've talked when we spent our time in previous episodes talking about why is it important that it's a you know that it's a cross, and so you know Paul elsewhere can be like, well, that's a sign that he's cursed of God, he bears the curse for us or the pain of it or you know, whatever else. But here it's more like this idea of death to resurrection because Jesus has come through death into resurrection. Mm-hmm. We're tied to Christ wherever Jesus goes, we goes, uh, and that that that's the idea and yet at the same time this idea of sins being forgiven is is caught up with this so mm-hmm. there, there's that idea of forgiveness um or maybe you could say debt language that's being erased but the it's interesting to me that that paul doesn't spend the time here saying talking about our sin debt so much as he just sort of says yeah the debt that we had it, it's dealt with at the cross and resurrection and he doesn't unpack it further as though like we talked about before it gets problematic if you sort of push too far and say who owes this debt and why is it, you know, who, who has to pay it? Mm-hmm. There, there, are, there are things that Colossians avoids by not poking at that too hard. He just says, you know, our, the record of our sins, it's, it's erased, it's taken care of. It reminds me a little bit of, there's this uh, line I've heard attributed to Corey Ten Boom, uh, who is the writer of The Hiding Place, who lived through that experience too. And the, the line is uh, that when God forgives us, God takes our sins, buries them at the bottom of the deep lake, and posts a sign that says no fishing. Um, and that idea of the, the, mm-hmm. the, the record of our sins is left at the cross and that God nails it there. That this image of the nails being used now triumphantly, instead of, oh, Jesus suffered, the nails mm-hmm. are horrible, it's sort of, here's what God did. God took the record against us and nailed it to the cross and left it there as if to say nobody can go back and get it anymore mm-hmm. um that that's sort of how how this passage sees what the the atonement's all about and with this language about baptism mm-hmm. in here it makes me realize it helps me to realize that you know often we think of resurrection as happening after physical death but you know the resurrection life is something that we can live now yeah we can live into now because of our baptism because we have and and, and unfortunately or for whatever reason um Often, because all of us, we do infant baptisms in our traditions. You know, we think that is a really cute thing. You know, <laughs> it's a baby, and it's cute, and it's wonderful, and it's a joyful experience. But we forget that fact that... This is about actually, death and resurrection. This is about death and resurrection. So we're, we're 
killing yeah. <laughs> this baby and bringing them back. You know, we're not literally killing them, but you know, the idea that they are dying to who they are right now and being raised as a new person. And so that's something that we can live into now, which yeah. I think is something that we tend to forget when we talk about resurrection because we always think post physical death. Right. And and to be honest, sometimes uh, the accusation that gets made about Christianity is that all we have to that all we have to say to the world is just sort of here's here's various ways of talking about plans of the afterlife when mm-hmm. the New Testament itself doesn't have that I mean, problem. The New Testament is like, no, it, the new life begins now. It also covers life beyond death. Um, and that's sort of where Paul went in Romans 8. Like, even when we get to death, that can't separate us from God. But in the meantime, there's, there's this other long list of stuff in this life that can't get to us mm-hmm. or that doesn't get the final say over us. Um, so it seems like here there's this idea of um, the resurrection of, of Easter means that um, because Jesus has died and has risen, we know that even when we face death, there's this new life and that uh, a life that's begun now for us. Um, okay, and maybe we could also say one more wink toward the Christus victor, and at the end of this passage he talks about that the cross disarms the rulers and the authorities and mm-hmm. makes a public example. And this is sort of like, um, you know, while Jesus is dying on the cross, Rome thinks, ha ha, this proves that we're the strong ones because we killed him, and from God's vantage point, it's, no, this proves that God's way is right because Jesus lays down his life for his enemies, and even at that, when death does its worst and the empire does its worst, Jesus exposes, look, they couldn't, they couldn't finally keep me down forever, that kind of thing. I feel like that is also throughout um, the Gospels when Pilate is questioning Jesus. Yeah. Like, and Jesus is just the sassiest guy. <laughs> and is just sassing Pilate left and right and, like, making Pilate look like a doofus. Right. And It's not hard to do. But <laughs> no. I would like to think that the, the real Pilate... Like, who was actual, like, governor. Yeah. Maybe also might have been sassing Jesus back, and since, you know, the writers of the gospel weren't actually there, right. might have just <laughs> omitted that part. <laughs> but, because it, it's really, it's super one-sided. Um, Jesus is super sassy to Pilate, who is representing Rome. And that idea of that, you know, it, as, as these stories were held on to by the early generations of Christians who were regularly getting rounded up by Romans mm-hmm. and fed to lions or killed or crucified, that like that story was like, no, Jesus' death and resurrection is about the empire doesn't get the last word. They can feed mm-hmm. us the lions, but they don't get the last mm-hmm. word. And what I think what's amazing to me is that for all those early generations of Christians, they they took the story of Jesus and his trial before Pilate and saw it as... Uh, reason to be defiant or resistant but not violent. That it was, no, we're not going to bow to what Rome says. We're not going to burn incense to Caesar. We're not going to do what they say. And yet, our way isn't, we'll go kill the Romans. Do what you have to do. God's got our back. And that there's this resurrection Mm -hmm. hope, not um, we need to start a violent revolution against them. Um, That was something that was pretty radical and universal across the early church. Until a guy named Constantine came along and said, the empire is now adopting Christianity as the official religion. <laughs> That's a conversation for another day. <laughs> um, maybe do we also want to go to uh, another New Testament epistle, Greatest Hits? Do you have, do you have a, a passage in front of you, uh, Erica? Um, I have here, so we were talking about this before the episode, Ephesians. I believe we were talking about chapter 2, correct? Yeah, yeah, there's more of that death and resurrection mm-hmm. idea there, huh? So, um, looking here, starting in verse 1, says, you were dead through trespasses and sins in which uh, you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Uh, for, for 
for all of us once lived among them in their passions of our flesh, following the desires of the flesh and senses that we are by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy out of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here I'm seeing again, it's talking about resurrection, but we have no talk of the cross. Right. Yeah. And it's not because this book is unfamiliar with the cross, but it's more like the emphasis is on a different syllable. It's yes. more like the focus is on that Jesus moves from death to resurrection and that that's the word for us. It's it, even, go ahead. And it's also talking as if our resurrection with Christ has already happened. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a it's, weird feature. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not so much that, hey, when you die, you'll also be resurrected. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the hope of the future resurrection. It's you've already been resurrected with Christ, which is interesting. It's, it's a gutsy move as people are like, uh, but it sure feels like Thursday to me. Um, you know, as people are living through their regular yeah. difficult lives. Um, and it seems to be sort of like, it's so guaranteed that your life is, you know, sort of locked in the, in the vault where Jesus is, that there's no way anybody can get to. But yeah, it does beg that question of like, what, what are you saying? Is, is, is this it all that I'm hoping for? Because if, if I've already got whatever the resurrection is, it sure looks like I can still skin my knee and get arthritis mm-hmm. and get sick and all that kind of... And it doesn't seem like that's the move that this passage is trying to make. Um, so much as to say it is so sure, it is so locked in, uh, that it's like your resurrection is guaranteed. It's there, already paid for, already dealt with, already accomplished, maybe. But... I see a sense of the ascension in here too, mm-hmm. which comes you know another forty days after the resurrection. Right. Um, and in some of the reading and research I've done in preparing to preach for sermons on the ascension, um, part of what that gives us is Christ sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Is it means that um, we have that same power that He has. It's enthronement language. Yes, and so that's what I'm seeing here. Yeah. You know, even though we're not seeing the you know the glory of the resurrection just yet. Mm-hmm. We can experience the power of the resurrection in our lives. And this is maybe a, a whole way of thinking about what happens at the cross and resurrection that maybe we're not used to because we don't live under foreign occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a world where you are living under a uh, you know, powerful, oppressive empire and waiting for the day, will they, you know, do they get to say that they're in charge forever? And that part of the early Christian hope was, no, every empire will come and go, but it, Christ is the sort of alternate uh, who brings the reign mm-hmm. of God, no, nothing less than the very kingdom of God. And that there's this, there's this really important idea of why, why is the death and resurrection of Jesus good news? Oh, because it means he's ascended to authority and he's really the one who at the last reigns in all and not Caesar and not mm-hmm. Pontius Pilate, Doofus or not, and not uh, Herod and not anybody else. Um, that, that's a really important idea to the New Testament that, uh, at least to be honest, I think a lot of 21st century Americans, like, we totally miss because we don't even realize that's an issue. Mm-hmm. That for for most of early Christianity, it was um, Christianity as this hope of the, the powers of the day won't last forever, uh, and our way of walking the way of Jesus is part of our resistance against that. Um, and man, we don't we don't talk like that in American Christianity uh, very often. Um, I guess there's another place to notice this in this passage that that you read for us, Erica. There's again the idea of um, trespasses and sins being taken care mm-hmm. of, um, but it's it's not even about forgiveness language. It's not there was a mm-hmm. debt that had to be uh, paid or um, a crime that had to be punished. It's more like. 
that sin made us dead, and the solution mm-hmm. being dead is being raised to new life. Mm-hmm. So there's less talk about who has to pay a price. It's more about we were dead, and God has to raise us back up to life. And, and even that doesn't really mention death or a penalty, because like, it's by grace you right, have been right, saved. Right. It's not by Jesus' death you've been saved. It's by grace. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that even, again, as you mentioned, Erica, there's no talk about the crosses. It's more like because Jesus rose, which obviously assumes death of some kind, but yeah. resurrection, and that, yeah, grace is what has done the saving here. Um, in a way similar maybe to like the way Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That nobody has to die for that to happen. It's not a trade-off that somebody else has to die so Lazarus can live. It's more this Jesus who comes into the world is able to speak life uh, even to deadness. To, to me, this this passage, which I would I would put alongside Romans 8 in like the Lutheran Hall of Fame of like, yep, this is where we get our, our, our whole theology could be mm-hmm. spun out of this. Um, but... Um, uh, There is this great line of the Episcopal writer, um, Robert Farrar Capon, who says that Jesus didn't come to improve the improvable or reform the reformable. Jesus came to raise the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that if if that's at the heart of it, that's an important idea that that, uh, it's, it's... what 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 is the atonement all about? It's we were what we bring to the picture our deadness, mm-hmm. and that also means that at least Lutherans in particular would be ones to say like that means what did I contribute to my being saved or atoned mm-hmm. or whatever? I brought my deadness. So yeah. <laughs> like, just like Lazarus, he brings his deadness. Not very helpful, and that means I can't even take the initiative on my own. Someone has to raise me from the dead. Lazarus can't say, "Please, Jesus, raise me from the dead." He brings his deadness, and Jesus finds mm-hmm. him in his deadness and raises him. Um, that I mean, and that—that's what uh, at least Ephesians seems to mean about talking about this is grace, and even your faith isn't your own doing; it's mm-hmm. a gift of God. That's that's um, a lot of power put on Jesus, and a lot less that is put on my shoulders, which is good because I cannot carry very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, one other thing I want to maybe lift up as a recurring theme from the Gospel of John, which we, there, it happens so many times, it's not worth maybe landing in any one of them for too long. But in John's Gospel. Jesus often uses one recurring phrase that is both about the cross and the resurrection. He'll talk about when I am lifted up. Mm-hmm. And that's not just uh, up on the cross, although John the narrator will go, he, this was about the way he was going to die. But it's also about that's where Jesus is glorified too. Mm-hmm. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you know, uh, just the, the serpent on the pole is lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. He talks about being lifted up and drawing all people to himself. And that somehow what happens at both cross and resurrection, that these are not really separable events that you can dissect and say, well, the cross does this and the resurrection does this. But in John's view, these are like two sides of the same coin. Um, And that seems to be another important idea to all this, that um, maybe like we've talked before about, you can do sloppy, any version, any any of these atonement theories, you can do sloppily or Mm -hmm. you can do well. That we we make a mistake if you spend all the time talking about what happens at the cross without saying, and the resurrection is a thing. Or on the other hand, uh, if you're, I mean, we've all been to those churches before that, like, it's Palm Sunday, and then the next time they gather is Easter Sunday, and like, oh, he's risen, and there's no like, oh, he's dead in between, um, <laughs> and that, like, it, you lose something if the resurrection is just uh, continuing. He was alive last week. He's alive this week. That at the heart of the Christian faith, that something important happens in in, in all this. Mm-hmm. But maybe these are all bound up together. Um, and maybe it's interesting, uh, maybe maybe it's worthy of note, too, that the writers of the New Testament, 
they they don't get lost in the weeds that sometimes later theologians have by poking at the metaphors too much. You know, we're like, well, no, it's really more like paying a debt. No, it's like someone taking a punishment for you. And the writers of the New Testament like just keep throwing all these metaphors at us, and they don't seem to mind that they sometimes overlap or mm-hmm. sometimes seem to be pushing in different directions. You know, that the Christus Victor model is death is the one that you have to pay the ransom to, and penal substitution is, no, God is the one you have to pay the debt to. Mm-hmm. And the writers of the Bible just sort of throw all that up there and see that some of it sticks to the wall, I guess. And I don't know what that means for us except to say, maybe we should be careful before we get too fussy about there's only this one way to talk about it or there's only this set of metaphors that are acceptable because the New Testament seems to be okay living in that tension. Well, maybe it's because, you know, one one particular way might speak to one group of people and another way might speak better to another group of people. And so the writers are writing, I mean, no matter who wrote the epistles, mm-hmm. which one you're talking about, whether it's Paul or somebody else or, or Peter, or, they're, they're writing to a group of people. Mm-hmm. And so, and they, I assume, know these people. They have this relationship with them. And so maybe in one place, Paul's writing about Christus Victor mm-hmm. because that's what's really going to hit those folks. But then mm-hmm. over here, he's talking penal substitution because that's what they understand. Right, right, right. And we just have to learn to live in the fact that, you know, different groups of people are going to, and we still do this today. I mean, you yeah. know, we have certain denominations fall in, in certain sure. areas. and um, But to lose parts of any part of it, I think, is a loss for the greater church. Yeah. Well, and I think we said this before earlier in this series, that just like the parables of Jesus sometimes use overlapping or even conflicting seeming metaphors when he's mm-hmm. talking about, say, the reign of God, um, that we don't say, well, you can only pick one set of uh, parables to accept. But there's a note, Jesus seems to think all these get at some aspect of it, mm-hmm. that it's worth saying the New Testament, and the Old Testament as well, is full of different ways of talking about what happens uh, in this encounter to restore the relationship between us and God. Mm-hmm. And um, despite the temptation to say, no, here, here are the officially sanctioned, approved list of metaphors. <laughs> I mean, which sometimes, like, that's, that's sometimes what, what theology has done. Yeah. Sometimes mm-hmm. we've been those, here are the gatekeepers, here's the acceptable ways of talking about it, uh, and here are out-of-bounds ways. Um, that we should at least be honest, the New Testament itself has a wide variety of ways of talking about it. And instead of saying there's only one way that the Bible approves, like, no, the Bible offers a lot of metaphors and seems to think there's value in you miss something if you are missing this one, you miss something if you only have this one, that kind of thing. Well, and it's such a huge idea and concept to try to grasp. And I don't think any of us are ever going to fully grasp with this side of eternity. Mm-hmm. And so you do need all those things to help, you know, get that broader idea. And, and, and even still, I, I as many years that I've been reading scripture and studying the Bible, you know, I've been a Christian for all my life, I, I don't fully get how the perfect Son of God's death on a cross and resurrection three days later saves me. I just know it does. <laughs> like, right, right, right. <laughs> that's the important thing. I know that Jesus' death and resurrection means that I can have a saving relationship with God. How that works, I don't completely understand. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. And a teacher in seminary who used to say, um, the difference between a mystery and enigma is a mystery about something you cannot say enough, and an enigma is about something you can't say anything. Um, <laughs> and that the Christian faith is best understood as a mystery, mystery. that we mm-hmm. can keep talking over and over and over and never quite exhaust all that there is to be said. And that that's, that's part of the, the beauty of it, too. And new contexts and new conversations and new people will find other metaphors that are mm-hmm. helpful, too. Yeah, and I think ultimately for me... It, it is a mystery, but that mystery is so tied up with that promise that we have, we keep referring to in this episode of that ultimately 
I am baptized with the same baptism that mm-hmm. Jesus was baptized, and therefore I am also, you know, tied up in his death, and therefore also his resurrection. And that that gives me the promise that this life that we're li- living now, whether it's we're living it in, you know, the hope and promise of, you know, God's kingdom here on earth, but it is tied up with that imagery in Revelation 21 that God is making a new thing, mm-hmm. and that there'll be some day that God will make God's home here among us mm-hmm. and that there'll be no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. I want to hear more about this new creation idea. Do you? <laughs> do. Well, stick around because next week we will be starting a brand new series. Woo! Hot diggity. Well, <laughs> that, that's maybe enough of a teaser for me. Um, but we do hope that you have a blessed uh, rest of this Holy Week and a blessed and joyful resurrection and Easter celebration. And we will join you on the other side of the empty tomb <laughs> next week for a whole new series here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you guys. Bye.